1: The FT. Welcome to the World Weekly podcast from the Financial Times. I'm Gideon Rachman, the FT's chief foreign affairs commentator, and I'll be presenting this podcast aided by Helen Worrell, who's here in the studio with me. Hi, Helen. Hello. Each week, we're focusing on some of the major international political stories that are making the headlines, and we'll be drawing upon the FT's team of foreign correspondents and international analysts to make sense of world events. This week we're starting with BP, which is now not just an environmental disaster, but also a political and diplomatic catastrophe. Ed Crooks, our energy editors in the studio, to assess the damage both environmentally and politically. We'll also hear later from our correspondent in Jerusalem, Tobias Buck, on how Israel may be changing its stance on Gaza and the blockade.
2: There's been something of a cumulative effect here. Uh, Israel has been through several instances over the past few months, and I think there's just a, a sense that that something had to give.
1: But first, BP: the Deepwater Horizon explosion on April the 20th has caused one of the world's biggest ever oil spills, untold environmental damage, and now threatens the future of BP, one of the world's largest energy companies. It's also seen a media storm with BP chief executive Tony Hayward vilified in the press and by American politicians. On Wednesday, President Obama met BP's chief executive and chairman, and it appeared that the mood was a little bit better after that meeting. So, Ed, do you think BP are now through the worst, at least, of the political storm?
3: I think they may be, yes. I think certainly in many ways... Uh, the the problem is very very far from over. There's still going to be a big investigation uh, or a series of investigations into the disaster and exactly what happened. That could turn out very badly for BP in terms of uh, the company's actions leading up to the accident. There are, the oil is still leaking out of the well, of course, and they they still have to deal with that. And their efforts to contain it so far have not been very successful. The oil is still washing up on the beaches uh, right the way around the Gulf. Uh, people are still very angry concerned about angry and concerned about that. Uh, a lot of industries are still badly affected in terms of uh, bans on fishing and in terms of the effect on tourism and so on. But politically, there does seem to be a new mood there. There does seem to be a new climate. As you say, uh, the meeting appears to have gone pretty well by BP agreeing to pay this $20 billion into a fund to help compensate the victims of the disaster. It does now look as though essentially they've kind of bought themselves some time and space with the administration and the administration has been coming out and saying that they are essentially giving assurances they're not trying to destroy BP. They talk about, that we see uh, virtue, and the President Barack Obama talked about this, he said we see virtue in BP being a strong and viable company, we want it to remain that way, and that's obviously a very important statement for BP.
1: And BP shares rose afterwards, but I mean, the President may not be actually attempting to destroy BP, but I he perhaps willing, do you think, still to see it as collateral damage? Do you think he ultimately cares in the end, or is his real concern just to, to, to A, douse the political fire and, B, make sure that BP picks up the bills?
3: I think that's right, as you say. I think, uh, actually, it would be quite damaging for the United States if BP was completely destroyed as a result of this I think it would send a bad signal about foreign investment coming into the US of course BP's shareholders 40% of them are in the US as well so it would be a very unpopular move with all of them BP employs uh, more than 20,000 people in America as well who would uh, who might lose their jobs if the company failed and so on so for all those reasons I think it's right uh, to think that the administration does want to preserve BP as a going concern. But as you said, Barack Obama's is facing very, very severe political pressure. I guess the other thing that's probably happened as a result of this fund now being set up is he's uh, eased that pressure on himself a bit. That actually, if you hear a lot of the reaction afterwards... Uh, It's been pretty positive. In fact, even some Republicans have been saying, at last, we're seeing the president doing something useful, doing something constructive in this whole saga. Now, what is it, eight weeks it's been going on. The administration has been greatly criticized for its slow and inadequate response. Now they have apparently done something pretty concrete to the tune of $20 billion worth. And that does seem to be, as I say, winning um, President Obama some support, therefore easing the pressure on him so he will not need to go quite so hard and BP.
1: How, uh, finally, do you think this has changed the debate on energy security in the U.S.? Because President Obama's been a bit all over the place. And, you know, initially he was very much into g- green energy. Then he lifted the ban on offshore drilling a, a month before this-, this terrible disaster. And that- then in his White House address, he seemed to be back on the sort of we've got to wean ourselves off oil line.
3: Uh, do-, do you think things will actually happen or is this just a rhetorical shift? I think it's just a rhetorical shift I'm I'm afraid to be pessimistic about this but I think that very often these kind of events come up and everyone says everything will change after this, this is a game changer and then nothing very much does change. I think that um, if you look at the the way the US economy is constructed and the way the energy system of the United States works it's very very hard to shift in a really significant way away from the main sources of their energy which are coal and oil and it's going to be uh, I think beyond it was it was certainly beyond the president's powers before this incident to try and shift that, and it became very clear that it was going to be very hard to get energy and climate legislation through Congress. I don't really think that this disaster, as huge as it was, I don't think even then it's going to make a difference to the way Americans perceive fossil fuels and the fact that they're going to want to still carry on carry on relying on fossil fuels. I think people will say, yes, this was a terrible accident. It should never be allowed to happen again. We must have stricter controls on drilling. We must make sure that we don't have these kind of huge spills in future. But are they going to say, say, yes, let's move away from oil, let's let's give up on this and move move to biofuels or electric cars much faster than we have been? I don't think so. Ed, thanks very much indeed.
1: Now over to Helen for some of the other major world news stories of the week.
4: Thanks, Gideon. Israel has been at the centre of international disapproval after last month's attack on a Turkish flotilla carrying aid to Gaza. The country is now looking at ways to soften its position on the Gaza blockade. Tobias Buck, our Jerusalem correspondent, spoke earlier to one of our World News editors, Fiona Simon. In the wake of the attack on the AIDS flotilla en route to Gaza, Israel's faced some quite unprecedented
1: criticism, but it's faced some criticism before. So why now do you think it might be changing its mind about the blockade?
2: It is certainly true that Israel has in the past been very happy to ignore criticism coming from abroad, in particular when it comes to its policy in Gaza, where we've seen um, a, a very tight economic blockade in place for Uh, more than three years. I think the reason why um, Israel is about to change its mind and at the very least relax the siege on the Gaza Strip is, uh, A, the fact that the U.S. has sort of joined the chorus of critics. And I think also there's been something of a cumulative effect here. Uh, Israel has um, uh, been through several instances over the past few months where there were actions taken by senior Israeli politicians have sort of created an outcry. Uh, we've had, of course, the assassination of a of a Hamas uh, agent in. In, in Dubai. Um, and I think there's just a, a sense that, uh, th- that something had to give uh, after all of these incidents, and in particular after the very bloody and very controversial one in the eastern Mediterranean, where, after all, nine pro-Palestinian activists from a, from a nominal ally of Israel, namely Turkey, were killed.
1: Do you think there's also a sense that perhaps the blockade hasn't achieved
0: what it set out to achieve?
2: Well, I think um, many in the Israeli security establishment would probably privately agree with that. They would say that there's no evidence uh, that Hamas has been weakened as a result of this uh, embargo. On the contrary, uh, by creating this smuggling network, uh, thanks to which Uh, tons and tons of products arrive in through smuggling tunnels from Egypt uh, and creating a market which is under the complete control of Hamas. Uh, In fact, uh, the embargo has actually allowed Hamas to consolidate its regime in Gaza. Um, According to most, uh, I would say, neutral observers, um, the embargo has not worked. But at the same time, it's very difficult for Israel to change course for domestic political reasons.
1: So what do you think is their thinking? I mean, ha- ha- what form is this easing of the embargo likely to take?
2: Well, we've basically had a very intense discussion over the last uh, almost two weeks among the senior Israeli leaders as to uh, what exactly they should do. I think there is a consensus that uh, that something must be done um, and that uh, basically two principles... Um, are guiding the israeli leadership in their in their thinking the first is that civilian goods or what they call civilian goods um, which tend to be sort of consumer staples uh, food drinks uh, these kind of things they should be allowed to enter gaza in greater quantities and also a, a wider range of products should be able to get into gaza Uh, At the same time, of course, the Israeli government will insist that no security-sensitive materials can enter the Gaza Strip. I I think the really interesting question is... And what will happen, for example, um, with regard to construction materials, of course, uh, we had the war in Gaza last year. Thousands of houses were destroyed and uh, Gazans have been unable to rebuild them. Now, uh, Israel has so far always insisted that construction materials can't go into Gaza quite simply because they say um, Hamas would use them to construct bunkers and other sort of military infrastructure. Now, if... um, If uh, Israel relaxes the um, import regime um, uh, for Gaza for construction materials, they will want to make sure that um, whatever cement and bricks and steel and glass they let in does not find its way into the Hamas military wing. So quite possibly we could see the UN taking a very prominent role in actually administering the distribution of these materials in the Gaza Strip.
0: So for the Palestinians themselves, um,
1: how important is this move to ease of the blockade going to be in practice? How, how much difference is it going to make to their day-to-day lives, do you think?
2: Well, the suspicion must be that the impact on the lives of ordinary Palestinians in the Gaza Strip won't actually be that great. Let's not forget that, after all, most consumer products do somehow find their way into Gaza through the tunnels. Of course, they are too expensive for the vast majority of Gazans, uh, what would make a major difference to Gazans, I think, uh, is actually not so much what goes into Gaza, but what can go out of Gaza. The Gaza economy has, in the past, been heavily dependent on exports, exports of uh, fruit and vegetables, um, exports of, uh, of clothes, furniture, all kinds of sort of simple manufactured products. That was a real strength of the Gaza private sector. Now, the private sector has essentially been obliterated. There's nothing left of it in the Gaza Strip. So in order for the economy to get growing, in order for jobs to be created, in order to sort of wean um, Gaza society off uh, international aid, what really needs to happen is an opening of the Gaza borders to exports. And on that, we have not heard very much from the Israeli government.
4: That was Tobias Buck in Jerusalem talking to Fiona Simon on Wednesday. So, Gideon, would Israel have changed its policy on the blockade without this furore over the aid flotilla?
1: Um, Well, it certainly heightened the pressure on them to do it. So, you know, at some point they would have changed it, but it's clearly... uh, They've they've felt a growing international pressure, and I think that the Israelis have two major diplomatic worries at the moment. They, as Tobias said, they're used to uh, not being incredibly popular in their region, or indeed in large parts of the world. But they are two relationships that are going. Wrong in some way. I mean, the 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 most dramatic change has been the relationship with Turkey. Turkey used to be the only big Muslim country with which Israel had a decent relationship. It's a very important neighbor as well. You know, it's close by. The Israeli the relations were so close. The Israeli army, I think, it may even still uh, air force may still train there. But uh, you know, of late, uh, the relationship with Turkey has soured in a very dramatic way, so that. Uh, The government of of, uh, Prime Minister Erdogan is now more overtly hostile to Israel in some ways than than traditional enemies such as the Egyptians or or the, the Arab world. And I was told, for example, that posters of Erdogan are now all over the Gaza Strip because he's seen as a sort of popular hero. And that's a very dangerous development for for the Israelis and one they're profoundly uncomfortable with. The second development that uh, will be alarming them and is, is again, fairly you know, much discussed is the deterioration in their relationship with the US since the beginning of the Obama administration. Now, that's less serious in one sense, of course, You know they're they're still close allies with America, but any change in that relationship, any cooling, is dangerous for them because the U.S. is the sole superpower. It's also Israel's closest friend in the world. So if it appears that that things are going worse for them in America and in Washington, that is dangerous for them.
4: Thanks very much, Gideon. Much of Osh, the capital of South Kyrgyzstan now lies in ruins after days of ethnic fighting that has left at least 189 people dead and forced as many as 100,000 ethnic Uzbeks to flee for safety in neighbouring Uzbekistan. The violence is the worst to hit the area since an uprising in April that toppled kirkmanbek Bakiev, the country's president. Neil Buckley, our Eastern Europe editor, joins us in the studio. Neil, let's go back a little what do we know about the conflict so far and how it started?
5: Well, as you mentioned, there was a violent overthrow of the former president of Kyrgyzstan, Komenbek Berkiev, uh, back in April. Uh, Mr. Bakiyev, of course, uh, had come to power in 2005 and really dressed himself in, in the mantle of democracy um, after... Uh, a couple of other so-called colour revolutions or pro-democracy revolutions in in uh, other former Soviet states um, but he unfortunately started to show authoritarian tendencies quite quickly, he never really delivered um, uh, economic improvement within Kyrgyzstan and people had become disillusioned with him The problem is the government that, uh, the interim government that took over after he was uh, deposed, uh, has not established control over the south of the country. The south um, is really the stronghold of support. Uh, for Mr. Bakiyev, uh, that support is among the Kyrgyz population in the south of the country. But there is also a sizable Uzbek minority. Uzbekistan is the neighbouring state uh, to that region. The Uzbeks have supported the uh, the new provisional government uh, because they felt that they were discriminated against by the previous one and have been hoping for a better deal from this one. Uh, and we've seen very, uh, very significant, very unpleasant violence between the Kyrgyz and Uzbek populations. Uh, 189 people killed is the official figure, but uh, there are many reports that uh, that the, the real figure may be much higher. Um, and although the violence has died down in the last day or two, there is a, a huge refugee problem, uh, an approaching uh, humanitarian uh, crisis because of the number of people who've been displaced uh, from their homes and are crossing the border into neighbouring Uzbekistan.
4: Now, the interim government that you mentioned has actually blamed Mr. Bakiev's supporters for this conflict, although he has fiercely denied any involvement in it. Who do you think is, is likely to be behind the uprising?
5: It's very difficult to tell at this point. Uh, it isn't, in fact, just the Kyrgyz uh, provisional government. Some uh, external observers on the ground, uh, NGOs and so on, have uh, pointed the finger at supporters of uh, Mr Bakiev or even at uh, members of uh, Mr Bakiev's family for having incited the violence. Um, but it's difficult to, to, at the moment to see how much evidence there is for that. There were reports that... Uh, Mr Bakiyev's son, Maxime, had been detained uh, by British immigration authorities, um, uh, but the, uh, the authorities in the UK have been a bit circumspect in, in what they've said about this. Um, certainly there are strong suspicions that uh, this violence was uh, incited in some way or may have been encouraged in some way and w- was not entirely spontaneous.
4: We know that the Kyrgyz government has repeatedly asked for military assistance from the Russians to help control this conflict. The Russians announced on Thursday that they could send in advisers, but crucially not peacekeepers, to help the authorities. What do you think these advisers will actually do in practice?
5: I think sending in advisers um, achieves two goals for the Russians. One is that uh, it will enable them to keep an eye on what's happening on the ground. Um, clearly, there is a great deal of concern in Moscow over events here because uh, this is a region that is something of a, of a tinderbox or a, a, as a patchwork of different uh, nationalities. Um, it's also a drugs trade route from Afghanistan. So Moscow is concerned about, uh, deeply concerned, uh, about what is happening there on the ground. On the other hand, Moscow has been reluctant to uh, send in peacekeeping troops, Possibly because it doesn't want to get dragged into a difficult and dangerous uh, situation where its troops could get bogged down for a long period. Um, by sending in advisors uh, it can at least uh, appear to be doing something uh, to assist uh, the government of Kyrgyzstan which has asked for its aid without actually committing large numbers of troops. Uh, The Russians of course may also be a bit reluctant to commit uh, large numbers of troops because they are uh, in a a process of a, a reset of relations with the United States it's not clear what the US reaction would be to Russian troops going in and Dmitry Medvedev, the Russian president, is visiting Washington next week um, and may not want to uh, make any uh, rash moves this week ahead of that visit.
4: Neil, thank you very much. Back to you, Gideon.
1: Thank you very much, Helen. Uh, That's it for this week. All that's left is to thank Ed and Neil in the studio. Thank you to Helen as well and to Tobias Buck in Jerusalem. Thank you all for listening. World Weekly was produced by Rob Minto. Now, I'll be in South Africa next week, but Helen will be here to guide you through world events. So until next week, goodbye.
3: For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts.
0: Did you know the Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach. And how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Here at
4: Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface.